right out of high school. Um, he went to Germany and was in Germany when the wall came down. He volunteered to go to Iraq during the first Gulf War and served there. I am shocked and amazed at the growth and the healing and, and the, the different person that I've become and that my children have become through um, losing John and through the trials that we faced. And, and I wouldn't trade those. I, I can't say you hesitate still to say that you would, you would choose each of these trials, but I wouldn't choose what has happened as a result and the changes within each of us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 14 of the Unalike podcast. We are excited to be with you this first week of December. We have a lot to catch up on, but first I want to get over to my co-host, Natalia Bonner. Natalia, it's been a big week, hasn't it? It really has. I feel like it's been a month or so since we recorded last, even though it's only been a week. So much has happened, I guess, here. Definitely a unique week for everybody because so many of us celebrated Thanksgiving in a really untraditional manner this year, right? What did you guys end up doing for your your Thanksgiving? Well, we had talked last week about how my family was planning to go out to a restaurant. That's what we've done for many years. And last minute, Brad decided that that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to cook. And he like full on wanted to be the one cooking. So we actually, the two of us did it together and we cooked a full on like a turkey and every single side you can think of, even our favorite slush, we made it all. So, so different than what either one of us had anticipated, but it was a lot of fun. I had no idea. Yeah. I don't think anybody would have ever expected that we could actually cook a turkey. So... <laughs> How did you cook it? Did you smoke it or you do it in your oven? No, we, you know that we cook a lot on our trigger and, you know, we're always smoking things out there, but yeah. we actually cooked our turkey in the crock pot. So yeah, we're not oh. normal, but it was so good. And I think turkey a lot of times is so dry that it's gross, mm -hmm. but cooking it in the crock pot, it was actually really tender and it's super moist and we've eaten it, the leftovers every day since, cause it's been so good. So sure. I was really proud of us. I had no idea. And I know that, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag. People know now that you and I are sisters and they probably assume that we talk all the time. And the truth is we've talked every single day since Thanksgiving and actually four or five times a day but we have never yeah. discussed what we actually did for Thanksgiving. So I didn't know any of that. I totally thought you ended up at Cracker Barrel. Yeah, that was <laughs> as shocking as can be. We really did it on our own. What did you end up doing? I don't even, <laughs> yeah, like we said, we've talked, but I have no idea what you even did yeah. or if you so, have Thanksgiving. <laughs> Similar thing, we just did a small Thanksgiving for myself, Dustin, and my kids. Um, hit, Dustin's kids were with their mom this year, so it was just the four of us. But as you know, our dad works a 24-hour shift, and with him working, I knew that our mom would not do anything to celebrate. And with our other siblings spending the day with their in-laws, I just had this thought that... My mom and dad, our mom and dad are not going to celebrate Thanksgiving this year. And so I thought we're going to make 
the whole dinner, but we're going to take it to them so that they at least can enjoy and participate in some Thanksgiving food. And so same thing, all of the, the kinds of side dishes that you just named off and we made the yellow slush because so everybody watching, we're going to have to uh, post a picture, put the recipe up for yeah. everybody watching. Yellow slush is the traditional part of our Thanksgiving meal. Thanksgiving is not complete without a cup of slush up at the head of the table. Absolutely. And it's the sugariest, sweetest. You can only have a little bit of it, but it's so good. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Like six ounces and you're, you're tapped out. That's all you need. But that's so funny. <laughs> I know that you love slush and I was thinking about you even was I, as I made it I, and we have to make it a couple days in advance because we have to freeze it. And I kind of, so that's what mm-hmm. I was thinking. Natalia is the queen of the banana slush. I feel like in years past, you've made it but I had no idea you made it this year. (laughs) Yeah, I make it every year. Even if we do go to a restaurant, we still make it every year. We, you know, if we go to a restaurant, we'll come home late at night or in the evening and just have slush as our dessert. So it's something that I guess that's the one thing in my life that I have maintained that tradition is making slush every (laughs) single year. And I also make it for Christmas. So twice a year, that's the one thing I make. We had a little bit of an emergency because we went to the grocery store a few days ahead of time. I was very proud of myself that I didn't wait till the night before, but even still with going shopping three days early, I was looking for bananas and the store that we were at has a phenomenal produce section, which means the bananas were all super ripe. And I was like, uh, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. I need some ripe bananas because I'm making this tonight. It needs time to set up. It <laughs> needs time to freeze. So we had to go to multiple grocery yeah. stores to find the oldest <laughs> bananas in town. So that was our a yes. little bit of our dilemma. But we found some. It all worked. How yeah. funny. Yeah, you definitely have to plan out your bananas when you're making slush. Yeah. Get them a little bit extra ripe. Um, I do have to tell you, though, speaking of all these things and Thanksgiving, last week we had shared all the gratitude stories, and it was fun to hear those stories. And one of them that I ended up receiving, I had reached out to Gina, and she was traveling, so she wasn't able to get me her story back in time for our recording last week. But she did still send it to me. So if it's okay, I do want to actually share her story. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, so Gina shared this, and I just love it. It's so real. She said, I've always known that having an attitude of gratitude makes everything you have enough and makes your life filled with happiness. During times of challenge, having an attitude of gratitude brings joy amidst grief and chaos. Over the last five years, our family has had a series of events that has shaken us to the core. There was loss of work, career changes, three marriages, and two divorces, betrayal, sickness, homelessness, two startup companies, moving internationally, COVID-19, company shutdown, and closure. No travel, limited access to everything, and death of a loved one. These challenges were affecting each member of our family. We were exhausted. Finally, the excitement and anticipation of a new baby would welcome relief and joy from all the chaos that was happening around us. We had been waiting a long time for this baby. 
Baby Roo arrived in, and our lives changed forever. Baby Roo was born with trisomy 2, known as Down syndrome. She was in the NICU for two months. The challenges were overwhelming for her parents, grandparents, and siblings. As we each felt and knew the burden of responsibility that was going to be needed. What we saw then as a challenge is now one of our greatest joys. Baby Rue will be three years old next week. I give thanks and gratitude <clears throat> for the gift of facing difficult challenges, knowing that with each challenge there is something joyful and lovely to experience. Baby Rue has healed our hearts. We celebrate everything big and small. We have no idea what Baby Rue can do. So every day, everything she does is a victory. She is embraced with love and surrounded by so many who are drawn near to her. No one can be around her without feeling her unconditional love and zest for life. She is creative, vivacious, energetic, and full of courage. It is my absolute joy to watch my children reach out and care for one another. This can only come from experiencing loss and pain. We care for others because we know it feels like <clears throat> we know what it feels like to be cared for and loved by others who have reached out to us. When we have been in need of a helping hand, I am grateful to know that having an attitude of gratitude makes everything you have enough and fills your life with happiness during times of challenge. Having an attitude of gratitude brings joy amidst chaos and grief. I really love that. I know Gina and I know that she's really has gone through a lot. She has an event type business that we all know everything that's happened with that type of industry this year just has to be so devastating. So I really appreciated just hearing her positive outlook on so many different things. So I just wanted to share that. Oh my gosh. Everything that you just shared ties in perfectly with the interview that I had earlier this week with Cindy Kloniger. I had an amazing time sitting down with her and learning more about her story. Here's a look back at that interview. Cindy Kloniger, we're so excited to have you here on the show today. Welcome to the Unalike podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that you have been through the ringer, just to be blunt and to kind of uh, put it how it is. Um, you have six children, and I'm going to go through a list of just some of the things that you have faced in raising your six kids. We have hemorrhagic dengue fever, congenital cataracts. We have epilepsy, club feet, tibial torsion, uh, distal, something I can't pronounce, and scoliosis, just to mention a few of the things. There's also some Lyme disease in the mix. You faced a military deployment, had a military spouse, a diabetes, adoption, and then to top it off, a husband who was diagnosed with a brain tumor and passed away in 2012. If there is anybody who knows adversity, it is you. We are well acquainted. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive in a little bit deeper and talk about your six beautiful kids. We can see them there in the family picture over your shoulder. Austin is your oldest. And today I know that he is doing great. He's in his 20s. He himself has joined the military. And I think that as a mom, probably someone who you couldn't be more proud of. 
I am extremely proud. He's doing well. He's um, in the BYU ROTC and National Guard. So he's doing well. Yeah. So Austin is the one who did have that hemorrhagic dengue fever. Tell us a little bit about that. He did. Um, so Austin served a mission for our church for two years in Peora, Peru. And while he was out there, he contracted a couple of illnesses um, and battled them. But right about his one year mark, he contracted hemorrhagic dengue fever um, for the second time. And it's really rare. Only about 5% of cases worldwide are this hemorrhagic dengue fever. Um, you start bleeding from your mouth and your nose your platelets start dropping at quite a fast rate and your plasma leaks out of your organs. Um, it's really painful. They call it the bone crushing disease and there's not any treatment for it. So they hospitalized him in Peru and just monitored him. And if your platelets fall low enough, they give you a blood transfusion and try to save your life. So he had that and every day I would get phone calls and updates from an area doctor who was over um, about 30 missions and each mission has 230 missionaries in it. And he would tell me my son was the sickest missionary he had mm. seen. And as my son uh, tells it, he said, I, I barely stopped dying. They released, her, released me from the hospital and four days later, he ended up back in the hospital with a um, H. pylori bacteria infection that he ended up battling with for the rest of his mission there for about a year. So we talked many times, you know, should we come home? Uh, what course of action should we take? And he, like all of my kids, I've learned so much about handling adversity from them. He said, mom, I will be like a Spartan warrior. I will either brought, be brought home dead on my shield or raising it above my head in victory. So wow. he was committed to be out there and to face the hard things, really hard things that he was facing. But he's, he, like all of my children have taught me, you know, you, you face it and either it, it beats you or you beat it and you can raise your shield high in victory. Yeah. You mentioned he was serving a mission during this time. And so typically for anyone who is serving a mission, they've moved away from home. They're out doing this, this uh, volunteer work. So you're not with him. You're doing all of this mothering from a distance. Tell me what that was like to, to have to be stuck home, if you will, and to kind of watch this from afar. You know, um, I, I think like all of the adversity that I've faced, um, when I look at it and consciously think about it, it should be a lot harder than it is, but that's one of the great things about God is, is he doesn't leave us alone in our trials. And I felt this incredible buffer there that, that he was being watched over. Um, and while it was out of my hands, it was in God's hands. And I also felt that my husband who had passed away by that point was there with him. And during that time, um, our family was facing a lot of other trials um, too. That was, my youngest daughter was at her sickest point during this same time period. But I kind of call, it almost feels like a protective bubble that while, you know, I stop and I think, wow, I should really be freaking out. And these, these things are really hard and sh should be hitting me a lot harder than they are. But I felt just this encompassing love from our community and and from God that kind of just was a buffer for us. 
Yeah. Your relationship with God has definitely strengthened over the past few years. It's been almost nine years, I believe, since John passed away. That's probably a little hard to believe. It, it is. Um, in some moments, it feels like yesterday. And in some other times, it feels like an eternity. I will say I am shocked and amazed at the growth and the healing and, and the, the different person that I've become and that my children have become through um, losing John and through, you hesitate still to say that you would, you would choose each of these trials, but I wouldn't choose what has happened as a result and the changes within each of us. Talk to us a little bit about John. What are some of your favorite memories of him? He's just amazing. He, um, he served in the military during right out of high school. Um, he went to Germany and was in Germany when the wall came down. He volunteered to go to Iraq during the first Gulf War and served there. Um, following that is when he and I met and we met and went through med medical school together. He um, did his residency in the military as a podiatrist. And we actually had just signed papers. He had graduated and was going through his officer basic course when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And so the military we were going into became a very different place. And we were stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where through all of John's training, he received and treated our amazing men and women of the military and his patriotism and love for our country and love for people just showed through in everything. He was a great father. Um, he brought me a scripture shortly after we were married in Psalms that says, um, like arrows in the quiver of a mighty man, so our children, um, happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. And John um, had just one sibling. So for him to have this desire to be a father and to father six children was incredible. And he, he lived for that. John found himself not feeling well in 2010. And it started with a headache. Is that correct? Yes. Um, he just had a sudden onset of a severe, severe headache. Um, we immediately knew something was wrong and went to the emergency room where they found um, a walnut sized tumor in his brain. What do you think so when you did... see that scan for the first time? Um, it, again, it was those, those moments where you face such severe adversity, you feel this, this contrast of this immense knowledge of, of what it is and, and this bubble and buffer there. Um, like we knew it was severe, but we had such hope and faith. I, I guess that's the biggest thing through all of my adversity. Uh, John and I talked about it often is we were surprised of all the things you'll feel when you find out that you have cancer or you know a terminal illness or you lose your spouse. Of all the things that you think feel, we were surprised most by gratitude. Like we found those moments to be so thankful. And for John in his profession as a surgeon, we were so filled with gratitude that he hadn't had and continued not to have any symptoms that would prevent him from being able to work and take care of his patients. So he struggled 
with getting through cancer for almost a year and a half and continue to provide for your family, take care of six kids. How was that time? Um, we were wrapped in the arms of our community and they reached out to help us. And I was continually astounded at John's um, focus and his love that he was so concerned about making sure his treatment, his patients got the best treatment and care possible. He would say, they, they did brain surgery and then we continued to do radiation and chemotherapy for almost a year. And he would sleep and on the way down to work, he would have me drive him to work so he could preserve his energy and give everything he had um, in his office to his patients. He even refused to take the anti-nausea medication that often is very needed with chemotherapy treatment because he didn't want to affect his ability to be able to provide the best care for his patients. So he works um, and was amazing and, and gave his all to his family and to his patients for almost a year. And then at almost that year point, he started getting symptoms of being really dizzy um, and it came on quite suddenly and severely. So we went and got another brain scan. And at that point, we had found out that the cancer had returned all throughout his brain um, and there wasn't any further treatment that they could do for, to help him. He passed away on February 20th, 2012. And at that point, your children were between the ages of 15 and seven. What do you say when you're the mom, what do you say to your kids who are grieving and wondering why this had to happen to us? When we found out John had cancer, I had a lot of faith. And I knew I could put that faith, wherever I put that faith, my kids would follow. And, you know, there was some rare treatments that were, you know, going out through, on throughout the world that some people were suggesting that we fly, you know, to another country and try to do. But I, I knelt in prayer and I just said, I have six little kids that will follow me wherever I put my faith. And I don't want to lead them astray. I don't want them to feel disheartened and to have their faith um, not met if I put my faith in the wrong place. And so we put our faith in, in our family, in our love. There's, there's things you lose in death, but love doesn't know that distance. And the importance of, of John as a father and what he teaches, and we fully believe that he, he continues to do that beyond the grave but he's still a part of our lives um, and he still helps and he still, he still teaches and he still loves and we can feel that love. So mostly we put our faith at that and I try to teach my kids that um, and, and that's something that we can continue to build on that can't be taken from them. Cindy, you're a great example and we can see it in the kids that you have raised. We talked a little bit about Austin and where he's at today. Tell us about Kirsten and how she's doing. Kirsten's doing great. She is recently married um, and she's expecting a little baby in January. So we, we are excited. Yeah. Um, Get to, to be welcome. grandma, add another title to your resume. <laughs> After Kirsten is Amber and sweet Amber was born with congenital cataracts, something that a lot of us probably didn't even realize was possible. 
you know, I hear about cataracts and I think that's something that my dad deals with or my grandpa. So what happened when you guys received that diagnosis? Oh, that's also another rare disease that our family has. Um, only one in about 180 births a year um, have congenital cataract, cataracts. So sweet, sweet little Amber at six weeks old um, had surgery on her eye and we, she wore contacts until she was about two years old trying to restore and preserve some of the sight in her eyes. Um, along with patching, um, but her, her sight continued to decline and she, she has lost sight in the eye. So for her, she, she just has sight in one eye. She, and she has a great attitude about it. She makes jokes and, yeah. and, and just goes, it doesn't stop her. Very difficult. So the contact lenses, because she has no natural lens, they had to remove that during the surgery. So her prescription was plus 23. So most people usually are under four. So plus 23 was about the size of a marble cut in half was her contact lens. So I would have to use my little pinky fingers and try to hold the baby down and get in, get a contact lens in and out. And she would often rub her eyes and lose the contact. They're $800 a piece. So we had for years and years, even after she had stopped wearing them, we would see a little glint on the ground and stop and go and check and make sure it wasn't a contact lens that had fallen out. <laughs> hurry, hurry, we gotta save it. <laughs> right. People look at me strange, you know, when we would be out and I'm like, everybody stop, my baby lost her contact. <laughs> like, wait, wait hold on, what kind of a mother are you? <laughs> You're starting to work. Your baby wears contact, right. Right. So number four and number five are Caleb and Megan. And I want to talk about the two of them together. So talk a little bit about some of the things Megan has experienced and, and how Caleb has been involved. So when I found out I was pregnant with Megan, um, Caleb was just three months old and John had come on orders to be deployed to Iraq and wasn't going to be present for her birth. Um, I have severe pregnancies, all C-sections. So I knew I wouldn't even be able to hold Caleb. And I terrorized myself my whole pregnancy wondering how I was going to, to manage this. Um, but my husband, his commander ended up taking the first six months of the, the tour so that he could be home for Megan's birth and, and things like they always do. They're hard, but, but they worked out okay. And Caleb and Megan are beautiful together. Um, they were meant to come to earth together so closely. Megan developed her epilepsy the year that my husband passed away when she was seven. And from the very first moment, um, Caleb's been at her side and helped her. He is calm to everyone else's crazy. <laughs> when everyone else gets really excited and panicky and he just says, I don't understand why everyone panics. It doesn't help the situation. So he has literally um, saved her life from, she's had seizures in a pool at two separate times. The first time she was seven, he was eight years old and he held her head above water and got her help. He's helped her um, another time, you know, when he was just um, 12 years old and swam with her quite a bit and got her out of a pool. 
one of my favorite stories about Caleb is their, I think it was about third grade. They went to a real, um, actually it wasn't real. They went to a baseball game. So it must've been the bees, right? Sure. Wrong sport. <laughs> they went to the bees baseball game and Megan was sitting on the grass with some of her friends and the teacher told me that Caleb was clear around the other side of the field with his friends but about every 20 or 30 minutes she would see him get up and he would walk around the length and come and just not bother Megan but just look at her and make sure she was okay and then he would go back and sit down with his friends so he's just always had this huge heart and responsibility to, to help take care of her she um, has uncontrolled epilepsy. She's failed eight different treatments. Uh, and at her worst, she was having three status epilepticus seizures a week, which are seizures that last longer than 11 minutes and about 180 small seizures a day. And that would, we're just really trying for her. She would have a lot of them through the night. Um, and this was all going on at the same time that my oldest son, Austin, was battling hemorrhagic dengue fever down in Peru. Sure. How is Megan doing so, but today? today she, she's um, still challenging, but we've gotten it to where she's, she has about one grand mal seizure every two months is where we're at right now. She's having some severe memory loss, yes. but it's something that but, um, she'll probably battle with for the rest of her life. She's not able to drive. Um, so those things are kind of hard as she's getting older. The caboose in your family is Eli, and he came in a, a very unique way. He was a special delivery. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? When Austin, my oldest, was about four years old and we were living in North Carolina, we hadn't really discussed adopting with the kids. Just John and I had always said we wanted to adopt some. So I went and I had told John, my husband, I don't know, maybe, maybe we won't adopt, you know, we're I'm pregnant with our fourth child. So maybe not. And I went and tucked Austin into bed. He was four years old. And he said, mom, is there such a thing as kids that don't have moms and dads? And I said, yeah, you know, there are some, their parents die or they're not able to take care of them. And he goes, well, is there any way we can get one of those kids and I can be their big brother? Wow. So I was just astounded and I went in and told my husband and he's like, see, I told you. <laughs> so it was a few more years. Um, John, we moved again. He finished school, residency, went to Iraq. And then when we moved to Utah, all of my children at that point were just begging us to adopt. And, and we knew we started the, the process and um, immediately this two and a half year old boy with club feet um, was presented to us and and we just knew we knew he was part of our family I jokingly tell him that the way we found him is we went to China and found the loudest kid there and brought him home <laughs> he um so he had club feet um and tibial torsion which weren't in America we immediately those are our emergencies when a baby is born we immediately address them and cast them for 12 weeks and and they have minimal effects on on the rest of their life. But in China, Eli didn't receive his first surgery until he was a year and a half. Um, and, and the medical advances there weren't such that, that they helped him very much. To date, he has had um, 12 surgeries. 
Um, he has pain with every step, um, but he is just happy about it. He never complains. When he, when my husband passed away and he was seven, he was going to have to have one of his bigger surgeries that would put him in cast on both legs up to his hips and a wheelchair for six months. And how do you tell your first grader they're going to have to be in a wheelchair for six months? I just, I worried and worried and I worked up the courage and told him he was going to have to have a surgery and took a deep breath and cringing just said, and you're going to have to be in a wheelchair for six months. And he paused for a minute and said, I get a wheelchair. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's his attitude. Um, that's all of my kids' attitudes. They just, they take the hand. I found a quote this last week by Marcus Aurelius that says, love the hand that fate deals you and play it as your own for what could be more fitting. And repeatedly all the things that are thrown at my kids, they, they do, they just take the hand, they find the best at it and they, they play it as their own. Your story is one that is full of miracles. And I know that you have seen probably too many to count, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to maybe share a couple of those with us. Looking back when, when I found out that my husband was terminal and there was nothing more they could do him, my first thought was there's somehow been a mistake. Like I needed to see evidence that God hadn't messed up and he wasn't destroying our lives. Uh, selfishly, I probably would have liked him to be at home from the moment he got sick so we could soak up that time. But I think that that would have hurt him more. And so the fact that in a severe as brain cancer as he had, he had no symptoms. He had no headaches, no seizures, no you know, slurred speech, no limiting of any of his faculties or his motor skills that would have prevented him from doing surgery or working. Like that was a beautiful tender mercy that he received because it was important to him, like who he was to be able to continue to work. And I love that because God loved John enough to give that to him. Yeah. Another thing I looked at was, you know, how could this be happening? And my mind um, was brought to a memory of my oldest son, Austin. So we live in a small rural community. And so to get down to town, it's about a 20, 30 minute drive in the car. And we would spend a lot of time doing that for different activities. And several years before John became ill, Austin started asking us this question. What's February 20th? And I said, I, I don't know. We don't know what February 20th is, you know? And he would continue to ask, he's like, well, is it like somebody's birthday on February 20th? And we're like, nope. You know, did you guys get married on that day? Is it your anniversary? Like what's February 20th? Every time we'd get in the car, it seemed to be that time that he would start asking. And he's like, well, did dad deploy to Iraq on February 20th? And I'm like, no, no, that, it wasn't that, you know? And he started, kept asking and asking and was any world events like was there a major thing in history that happened on February 20th and he just kept doing this with enough frequency that everyone in our family knew about it and I remember one time I was like kind of frustrated and I was like no you know there's nothing on February 20th and and so as I you know the right after John died and this time I 
had been thinking, you know, I need evidence that God is in this, that he has a hand in this, that my life isn't destroyed and our family isn't destroyed. And so the, the week John passed away, Austin and I had gotten in the car to drive down to town for something. And we were both just sitting in silence and he's now, you know, 15 years old. And he just gasped and said, mom, I know what February 20th is. And as he did, it dawned on me, February 20th is the day that my husband passed away. And to me, that was that evidence that God's hand is in it all along, that he loves us. And while I felt, felt like everything was out of control, he had it in control and we're in his hands. He knew years and years before what would happen that the day that John would pass away and he gave us that little tender mercy again, not because it was important for us to know, but because he knew that I needed to know that he was in, had a hand in our lives. You've learned a lot of lessons over the past nine years. And um, one of those has to do with being prepared. When hard things hit us, the first thing we think is we're not equipped to handle it. Um, I certainly don't feel equipped to handle any of the trials that have been given me. But as I look at him, um, I can see, hey, just like what he told Austin, I've prepared you. You don't, you don't even know it. You didn't even realize it when it was happening. But years and years ago, I've put little things in your life to prepare you to, to be able to handle this and to, um, to grow. Because that's really the, the reason we have these trials is because it allows us to grow as individuals and to grow together and to grow in love and compassion for each other. Um, and when we lived in Texas, um, our dear friends and next door neighbor um, passed away in a helicopter accident in the military. And our family got a really up close view of the hurt and the grief and, and what that was like for their family. And then just a few short years later, I found myself in that same situation, but I, I also found myself looking back and grasping onto those lessons and the example that I saw of my friend and how she processed grief and how she helped her children. Um, so I can see that all of our experiences um, have been those little stepping stones that even though I feel ill-prepared, I, I am prepared to kind of handle them. Austin okay. was born and diagnosed with something with his eyes. Yeah, so it's amblyopia. So it's where one of your eyes sees really well and the other one doesn't. And usually it's, it's not caught right off. And so what happens is your brain gets um, double images. And so to stop it from getting double images, your brain just shuts off the eye that doesn't see as well and uses only the, the good eye. So when you see kids that maybe have a patch on their eye, you know, medical studies have found that prior to the age of 11, of 11, you can actually get the brain to turn that eye back on. So once they get corrective lenses, you can cover up the good eye because the brain will always use that one as the default. So if you cover up the good eye and patch it, then it forces the eye to use um, the bad eye and you can regain vision. So we did that with Austin. Um, 
when he was when he was younger he always had a pap time until he was about six or seven so. and then and then you were saying that because of that when amber was born with her congenital cataracts you were you were all practiced i was out. prepared you were prepared i was and, her, and hers was more severe um, but i had been given that little uh, taste of, of what it was and, and i knew i could handle it yeah that's amazing talk to us a little bit about an analogy that you like to share regarding mountains and the valleys so i love it um again this is one you know, my kids taught me so if you look at a really tall mountain and where does your eye, where's your eye naturally drawn and what do you see? If you look closely about a third of the way from the top, the mountain is different than the rest of the mountain. It's more rocky and there's not really as much trees or greenery because it's in the valleys that we grow. We all, we all want to be on the mountain tops, um, but it's in the valleys it's in that hard strenuous climb that we experience the most growth. And I feel our lives are much like that. We don't have, we aren't required to walk those paths alone. I love the community that God's surrounding you with and the people that I learned from their experiences and their encouragement. And they're just taking my hand and helping me walk along that path. But it's those treks upward that provide me and my kids with the most growth that we need. And occasionally we get to the top and we can rest for a minute and we can look back and see where all of those experiences have led us. And we can look forward and see where our journey is taking us. But then we always have to descend back into those valleys um, to experience that growth. And I think early on in my widowhood, um, when I was being overwhelmed with so much grief and, and trials and obstacles, I came upon the, the idea of, you know, owning, owning those trials. I stumbled across the book, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And he said, in, in his book, he says, you know, stop looking at the package and only look at the gift. And as I kind of made that switch in my mind to to shift my thinking from being a victim and to being acted upon to taking ownership of this trial and how I would handle it if this is something I picked up and chose for myself. Um, and it's changed everything for me. I have hard days and I have, I can have a really good tea party when I want to. But when I have that clear perspective that you get from the mountaintops of, of the importance of trial in our life and struggle and the growth that comes I, I choose to act differently and I can choose to own and and make something I hope good a positive thing out of the trials that we have absolutely well I think that you have been dealt some trials that many of us could never imagine facing um, and especially the the depth of some of the obstacles you've had to go through is greater than many of us can imagine, but your attitude and your reaction to the trials that have been dealt is something that I think we can each look up to you for. It's something that we can admire, and I appreciate you for taking some time out of your day to share some of these tips and thoughts with us. As we prepare to wrap up today, I just wanted to ask 
any additional advice that you can share with someone who is struggling right now, maybe struggling through the holidays, struggling with medical, with health, with finances, with anything that is going on, what tips or advice would you share with them? I think one of the things that shocked me most, most about grief, I knew I would feel sad. I knew I would miss John. I knew I would struggle as a parent, but I wasn't prepared, prepared for how it would change me as a person. I found myself, you know, forgetting things and, and I was pretty good at remembering things. And I found myself super tired and, and I couldn't understand why. And I kept trying to beat myself up and give myself this talking to like, okay, you, you need to get it together. You need to get back to who you were and how, how you interacted. Um, but what I found instead is that it's okay that I'm changed and it's okay that I'm different and it's okay that I, I live with handicaps now. I, I'm not that person that I was and I have to give myself grace to, to be that person, to be changed by the hard things that happened to me. But that's probably the biggest one because I, I feel like we all expect ourselves to handle things better than we do. And then we even put time limits and I don't know why there's no manual anywhere that says there's time limits on you know how trials affect you, but we give ourselves a time limit and, and then tell ourselves we have to return to what we considered normal. But I think just giving yourself grace that if one day I feel good enough to, you know, get up and get out and laugh and have a great time, that's awesome. And if I'm caught completely unawares at another point and I'm struggling to make it through the day, that's okay. It's completely okay. However I feel is okay. And then the other thing that I think um, is important is along with that, because you have such ups and downs, I would get frustrated with myself because I was like, well, yesterday I was fine. And I like, I could see the view from the mountaintop. And then all of a sudden I was down in the valley and I couldn't even see the sky. And I couldn't remember what the view looked like from the mountaintop. And so I would write down, I would call it, I would keep little notebooks everywhere and write down my truths. That when I saw those, when I had that view from the mountaintop, when I was feeling good and could remember why the trials were important, I would write those down so that when I was deep in the valley and I couldn't see anything but the dirt and rocks in front of me, I can look at those truths and remember those views from the mountaintops. And that, and that helped me a lot because it is a struggle. It's not a consistent climb. It's ups and downs. Cindy, you're a remarkable person. You've carried yourself with much grace over the past nine years. And, and really, I, I believe for your entire lifetime, I, I don't think that uh, you are who you are today just because you had kids or because your husband passed away. I think this is something that um, every little action that you've taken since you were a little girl has shaped you into the lady that you are today. And we appreciate you for being willing to come on and to share some of your stories. I know that you have touched and inspired all of our listeners and watchers today. So thank you. Oh my gosh, Corshell, her story was so inspiring. Thank you for interviewing her. How it totally ties back to Gina. That attitude of gratitude can just really change everything, the way you look at everything. And 
Hearing people like that is inspiring to me. Okay, but speaking of the attitude of gratitude, I just have to say one thing here. Over the last couple of weeks, I know a lot of people that watch and check out this podcast are my quilting friends, and you probably noticed that our newsletters have definitely stepped it up just a little bit. So I just have to say one little thing that I am definitely grateful for, and that's for you, Chriselle. Those of you that have received the emails, you can thank Chriselle for those because she is the reason why they're looking so much better. So I am grateful today for you coming in and taking over my newsletters for me. <laughs> Well, you're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, an observation that I've had over the past week, and of course, talking about your newsletters, we've been talking about Black Friday sales over there for everyone who does subscribe to the Peace and Quilt newsletter. But speaking of Black Friday, Dustin and I ran into Best Buy the other day. We needed to pick up a couple of things for our computers, and I noticed a wall, you know, taller than him, and he's tall. He's a, a tall guy, so... but. <laughs> Uh, a, a huge wall of um oh what's the craze right now it's not instant air fryers air fryers i was gonna say instant pot so a wall okay of yeah. air fryers and i just had this moment standing there in line where i thought so this was probably the wednesday before thanksgiving and i i had that moment where i thought oh my gosh Black Friday starts in, you know, less than 48 hours. And I feel like so much of 2020 has encapsulated us and, and pulled us in to a world of unknown. And we wear masks and we stay away from loved ones and we don't go out in public. But then we kind of do sometimes and it's a little bit weird. And for me, seeing that wall of air fryers just gave me a 10 second glimpse of normal and the reminder that <laughs> life is going forward life is moving on, Christmas is coming, that we better hurry and do our shopping because the 25th will be here before we know it and that we have lots of presents that still need to be wrapped. And so I, I think that that's my closing thought as we wrap things up today. I, I just want to issue that reminder that the end of 2020 is near. <laughs> and while I know that doesn't necessarily mean the pandemic ends on December 31st, it does mean that we've all persevered and we've all survived nine months of crap together <laughs> and I am yes. so grateful to be where I am today and I'm grateful for those little moments that we have like seeing air fryers in Best Buy to be reminded that life goes on yeah I love that great takeaway <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to all of you for listening today. We appreciate you taking time to stop by and to share an hour with us. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And of course, we love your comments. Feel free to leave one below. Until next time, have a great week. See you later.